Christmas seems to have come early for Doctor Who fans in the 50th anniversary of the show. Uh, we've managed to recover two Doctor Who stories, uh, The Web of Fear and The Enemy of the World, starring Patrick Troughton from the late 1960s. Uh, I think they're pretty much classic adventures. Uh, probably the largest haul of missing episodes recovered in the last 25, maybe 30 years. Uh, we're very pleased to return. Movies. No more room in hell. TV. Four games. It takes a very steady hand. Conventions. Star Trek action figures also sold separately. Comics. My spidey sense is tingling. Collectibles. Sold $325. Books. I'm a best-selling author. RPGs. Where the Cheetos? Video games. Grab and fields. <laughs> Music. <laughs> Anime. I'm the hero. This is the GDP Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to this very special satellite episode of the G2V Podcast. As many of you may know, a large number of original 1960s era Doctor Who stories were wiped or even junked by the BBC, sometimes shortly after they originally aired, never to be seen again. Now, most of those tragic losses centered around the first incarnation of the Doctor played by William Hartnell, as well as the second Doctor played by Patrick Troughton. While occasional episodes have been recovered over the years, until recently, there were 106 episodes still unaccounted for. That is, until now. On with the show. And joining us for this episode, we have Stephen Graves, online deputy editor of Stuff.TV, and co-host of his own podcast, Doctor Who The Naked Scarf, and he was actually a participant in the press conference and the debut of two of the newly recovered episodes from Enemy of the World and Web of Fear. And we're really thrilled to be able to have Stephen with us here to talk a little about that event and how exciting it must have been to actually be there at ground zero of this, this amazing discovery. So thanks for joining us, Stephen. Thank you. Um, it was a absolutely uh, a fantastic occasion, and you know it's a, a big deal for Doctor Who fans. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. Yes. We never thought the day would come. Probably that you know every time they discover something, you figure, well, maybe this will be it forever, and then all um, of a although although there's every possibility that the reason that um, that we've only been getting the stuff in dribs and drabs these years is because there has been some enormous haul sitting somewhere in a in an archive in, in Africa or Asia or wherever. Mm-hmm. Well, how did the actual event take place? Now, you had the good fortune to be invited to the press conference where they had, if I remember correctly, Fraser Hines was there, Deborah Watling was there, and Mark Gatiss. Uh, did he, he introduced the whole thing as well? Uh, yeah, basically the way it played out was um, every every journalist in London, it seemed, convened on uh, on one of the hotels in town. Um, <laughs> uh, descended to a screening room and um, the episodes were introduced by a uh, chap from BBC Worldwide and um, a chap from TIEA now it wasn't um, Philip Morris who's the actual discoverer of the episodes he's, uh, he's off adventuring somewhere at the moment, I hope trying to bring back more stuff, so uh, they read out a short prepared statement from him then launched into um, Enemy of the World 
uh, episode one, and then there was a, a brief um, pause, uh, and Mark Gatiss came out to introduce um, Web of Fear episode two. And was there a chance for everybody, I assume, to do like a question and answer period about all this? Uh, yeah, there was a question and answer session afterwards, um, which largely consisted of Fraser Hines and Debbie Watling um, talking through some of their experiences of, of shooting the actual episode. Um, I think there's quite a few transcripts up online of that. They didn't really go into any great detail on the actual recovery of the episode. That was all covered in sort of prepared statements and pre-filmed interviews with uh, Philip Morris. Now, as someone that's not only a journalist, but also obviously a fan, this must have been... I mean, we're all waiting. A lot of us were online last night, downloading and immediately starting to watch these on iTunes, and they made them available on iTunes. We have the DVDs to look forward to. What was it like seeing the episodes actually screened? Uh, and I think you told me you know, off mic uh, a little while back you were sitting behind uh, Fraser and uh, and Deborah Watling there, so that must have been interesting. It was, yeah, I mean, I, I had to pinch myself a few times. I, I never thought in my wildest dreams that I would be sitting down behind two of the companions from the 60 series watching The Web of Fear. Um, <laughs> it was quite an extraordinary experience. And uh, I noticed they sort of uh, shared a few words before it started, which was quite sweet. What's the impression you have? Now, the thing is, you mentioned about the hall in Africa. One of the things about this story that certainly I think going to persist for quite some time is that in the fan community, there has been a long-standing and constantly shifting set of rumors about the possible discovery of other episodes. This seems to fit together with several of those stories. And then, of course, people, as much as we love the idea that these are back, there's always, like you said, that hope that maybe something else would happen. If Mr. Morris is off still adventuring, <laughs> um, what do we think the odds are that his adventures will continue to turn up uh, new treasure for Doctor Who? It's an interesting question. I mean, I don't pretend to have any sort of special knowledge, but the fact that across the forums and in the newspapers, it's been remarkably consistent that um, we were going to see... Web of Fear and Enemy of the World. Um, Marco Polo was also mentioned, and there's been some talk that, that for whatever reason that's been delayed and has been recovered. The BBC is sticking very definitely to a party line that these are the only nine episodes, and if these are the only nine episodes that they've recovered, that's fantastic. In some ways, I think it's a shame that, that, that this, um, this omni-rumour has developed, because in some ways... It means that what would ordinarily be a fantastic haul, um, nine episodes of Doctor Who, the biggest haul of, of missing episodes ever, I think. And yeah, everyone's sort of saying, well, where are the other, you know, 70 or 80? That's fandom so, for you. I think maybe we should be grateful for what we've got um, before we start speculating <laughs> on what else is out there. All I know is I'm sitting there last night being able to sit on my laptop here in Baltimore in the United States and download within minutes episodes of Enemy of the World that were considered gone before I was born. And there's just no grasping how much joy that is. Oh, no. You know? I experienced the exact same thing myself. It's extraordinary. Um, and actually, one of the interesting things is that it's happened in a week where the BBC has, a, has announced a new version of the iPlayer that um, will let you download, pay-to-download programs. Mm-hmm. Um and the BFI has also announced their own BFI player, the British Film Institute, um, for your American listeners. I think there's a sort of pleasing symmetry in the fact that we've got back this hall of archive TV that was thrown away because 
at the time people didn't believe that uh, the home video was a thing in the same week that these two massive archive services are launching. And it's really interesting, too, that you have something like that. I mean, to, to follow that through, the idea that these were completely discarded. Such an, an idea that still, all these years, mystifies all of us because we can't understand the idea of, why would you do that? Why would you throw away huge <laughs> chunks of your history? And it's like, nah, just run that tape through again and we'll record another show. <laughs> and now, but- even the physical media aspect of it is going away in the sense that now... First, that was thrown away in junk. Now, that doesn't even matter. They're scanning everything in and making it available globally, digitally. It has transcended all of that. Although, I I admit to having a few sort of sleepless nights in the week or so before the the discovery was announced, when it was still being rumored that they'd recovered them, thinking, I really hope that they've made a copy of this, because, you know, if if the building they were in burns down... (laughs) 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 ...to discover that we were that close, so, you know... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, knowing our luck, it would just burst into flames before they digitize them. So, so I, I really hope that as, as soon as they find anything, they're putting it onto another media. <laughs> Some remote radio call from Africa. Hey, I found another fi- uh, uh Never mind. <laughs> Done. Then it was the, the Feast of Something or Other. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the pain. Yeah, I was really shocked to hear um, uh, in the interview with Philip how he talked uh, Philip Morris, where he spoke about how the the films were actually kept in a relatively uh, temperate uh, vault or, or storage facility, considering the environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, um, without wanting to belabor the point too much, I think that there seems to be a slight attitude that you know, Africa, you know, an archive in Africa is, is some sort of mud hut or something, and it is, <laughs> it's a it's a you know, fully functioning TV storage facility, and it's not that much of a surprise that something that's a dedicated storage facility would be storing the things. <laughs> okay, yeah, I suppose that's true. But when when you look at the uh, some of the stuff that's been, you know, found in vaults in the U.S. or even in in the U.K., and they it's this deteriorating mess, and mm-hmm. you'd think, well, we would be a little bit more responsible. But uh, yeah, it's just great news to hear how it was well kept. Yeah, it's uh, it's remarkable what good nick it's in. So I gather you guys have seen uh, at least a couple of the episodes now yourselves. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm taking my time with them. I've only watched the first two of Enemy of the World. Same here. <laughs> and exactly the same reason. It's like, uh, I don't really want to power through this now. You know, it's you know 40-plus years in my whole life, and now it's here. I can wait. I can, <laughs> I can enjoy it slowly. But as soon as I watched the first episode of Enemy of the World and saw the doctor running down the beach and clicking his heels, I thought this is just... This is the best 50th anniversary gift I could have gotten. So, oh no doubt. And I know a lot was, of people feel that way. It was amazing, wasn't it? I mean, just there's there's a dynamism to it that you just don't get in the telesnaps. That you mm-hmm. know, I think the telesnaps have one tiny little image of a very very grainy doctor out in the middle of the uh, out in the middle of the uh, the beach, um, and see him sort of capering around is fantastic. Sure, and the audio would never tell you that. So there's so much nuance, and and of course, as we, I'm sure we all know, one of the wonderful things about Troughton, not that all of them haven't had their the various elements of their performances that we love or that makes them unique, but Troughton has one of the most expressive faces of anybody that ever appeared in the show. An amazing actor, regardless of Doctor Who or anything else. And in this story, this is one of the stories that over the years, you know, you read the Target novel, you read about it, you read people who remember seeing it. It was always one of those ones that was never going to necessarily hit a top part of a list because it was atypical. 
it relies almost entirely on performance as well. I mean, it's, it's a showcase for Patrick Troughton. Mm-hmm. And to have that deprived of, you know, the visual component means that you're, you're missing a huge part of what makes that story work. Mm-hmm. Um, also, it's, uh, I mean, there were some genuinely hilarious moments, like the action poses struck by the uh, the chaps pursuing the dog. <laughs> 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 so I they, just think it's, straight, it's just amazing. Casting. <laughs> <laughs> right. But yeah, it's just amazing to watch him and to see him playing not only two roles, but two roles where he then also plays each character being the other character. I mean, there's yes. <laughs> there's not much more of a gift you can give an actor, I would think, in that situation than to say, there you go, knock yourself out, play. <laughs> oh, you can absolutely see the joy uh, that he has portraying Salamander. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just know he must have had the most, the most wonderful time doing that role. I've already seen yeah. so many people talking about how this story is almost inevitably, and I and and not to not to downplay the fact that it deserves it. But certainly the fact that it's one we got back is certainly going to help in the short term in the idea that it's certainly going to be very positively reevaluated, I think, by a lot of people in fandom, partially because it's come back and then also because we're enjoying it so much more because of the gift of seeing him in such a tour de force kind of performance and it's not the one you would think you'd be oh well the yeti of course and oh a cyberman story that's great enemy of the world you would, well there's no monsters there's none but it doesn't matter like steven said it's all about the performance and it's driven by him i think my favorite um comment on it was the telegraph's review of it where they, they pointed out that it's basically Crowton's um the great dictator because mm-hmm. if you have mm-hmm. a chaplain a chaplain-esque doctor then what better thing to do with him than uh well, make him play Annoy Tinkle, so um, with with Speedy Gonzalez's accent. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but you stink, eh? <laughs> I think the other interesting thing is actually um, just going by the initial response to Enemy of the World and Web of Fear. The reception of Enemy of the World seems to be considerably better than than that of Web of Fear. Possibly it's because Web of Fear has, has such a reputation that it's it's suffering a little bit from sort of Tomb of the Side Men syndrome that people are, are looking at it and going, yes, it's good, but the end of the world is so much better than we were expecting that it's getting a slightly more positive response. Well, I mean, again, and that, like you said, I mean, the thing is, like, the Web of Fear is like, that is one that would have topped lists. Like, which stories mm-hmm. would you like to see back? And it's Lethbridge Stewart, and it's the Yeti, and it's so iconic. That even if it even if it's suffering, it's also like well, okay, we know that one's one that we cared about, but look at this over here. This is amazing. It's like Enemy of the World in some ways is an even bigger gift because it's giving you the opportunity to rediscover a story rather than just have one back. Yeah, and it's not one that I particularly. Um, I mean, I'd never read the target novelization of Enemy of the World, so it was a, a complete sort of. I'd, I'd seen the. I know the plot. I'd seen the the, the photo novel. Um, but it was interesting just to approach it almost cold and, and see it as a completely new episode of Doctor Who. I think there's a there's a few stories that people have sort of saved. Um, I, I think uh, I was reading one of the guys from SFX was saying he's never watched is it The Smugglers because he wants to have one, you know, just in case it ever comes back, to have one story that is approaching completely cold. Hmm, that's interesting. Okay. So Enemy of the World was quite kind of like that for me. Also, we can finally date the thing because there's a there's a clear shot of the helicopter's license. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> the that's second right. of few arguments 
For, it's in the future too. That's yeah. right. We we haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> it wasn't one of those ones that's set in the far future of 1983 or something. <laughs> well, I'm, yeah. I'm I'm hugely looking forward to um to donning my my kinky boots and that sort of <laughs> PVC riding outfit that um that they're wearing. <laughs> it's, well, that said, I th- actually think the costume design is pretty pretty great in this one. It's it's wonderful. It's it's so very very sixties. I, I oh yeah. It's, it's, a 60s vision of the future in which we're all jetting around on hovercrafts wearing these sort of one-piece plastic outfits. <laughs> How can you not love it? It's, it's it, great. And, and Patrick Troughton basically dressed as Austin Powers when he's playing something. <laughs> <laughs> do I make you a randy? Is that what I do? <laughs> <laughs> do do you think he has a revolving you? bed? <laughs> <laughs> Salamander's Hot Wild Nights. See, it's a whole new era of humor that's going to come out of this, too. G2B. For almost two decades, Midnight Syndicate has composed the soundtrack to your darkest nightmares. Imaginations of fans worldwide have been fueled by its gothic, horror, and fantasy symphonic albums. A staple of the haunted house and amusement park industry, for many, the music of Midnight Syndicate is the music of Halloween. Now, Midnight Syndicate will bring your nightmares to life in a spectacle of sight and sound from beyond the gray. Support Midnight Syndicate Live on Kickstarter.com today. There was one review of, um, uh, of it. I th- it might have been the Telegraph's review or it might have been the Guardian's review, I forget which, where they say during that scene um, where uh, Troughton is um, tending to um, what's the face is Astrid's wound there's a little look that flickers over his eyes that's almost sort of, uh, they say, almost lecherous or almost like lust. And you think, um, in the context of sort of modern Doctor Who, where he's chasing around after his assistants, practically, it's not that surprising. But in the context of 1960s here, it's a, it's a sort of slightly jarring moment. I Something we never expected. Yeah, I absolutely felt the same way, and that's the other thing I, I was saying to my wife while I was watching the first couple. I was saying what's interesting about this, and this goes back to what I was saying about like we had the telesnaps, had the audio, but nothing matches seeing the actual show. And I and I said what's interesting about this is even with some of the knowledge that we had, we knew the dialogue. It feels like there will probably now be references and bits drawn out of this that will now become part of the mythology of Doctor Who repeated in fandom in a way that we've often looked to other touchstones, like things like, I'm just, for example, like when you go to the Tomb of the Cybermen speech and he talks about family, and they're like yeah. these little moments, and for instance, like you were just saying, it's a, it's a different sensibility today, but one of the things people always point back to is the Aztecs. Well, when I was mm. watching that scene, that same scene you're talking about, he looks like he's getting mesmerized by her. And there's the part where she says something like, there's something I'd like you to do for me. And he looks completely, I'll do anything, I'll do anything. <laughs> and I thought, it's like, wow, he's really into her for a minute. <laughs> and it's like that moment could become a moment now where we're going to go back and say, oh, it's not just the Aztecs. You can find it here, too, that he's got this moment with her where he's connecting. Mm-hmm. And I think that we're going to find that stuff now. 
it's not just Paul McGann and the fireworks. But, um, <laughs> but it's yeah, it's, it's interesting sort of going through those episodes and thinking, wow, the, the, you know, these are going to be the, the clips that they use in Doctor Who Confidential now. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. It's uh, it's only a shame, really, that we didn't get, you know, they didn't recover them in time to drop something into, oh, I don't know, Name of the Doctor or, or the Snowman s- or something. Right. Which, by the way, is one of the things that's often come up about this, the timeline of how all this has worked out in a story that is likely not to be told for quite some time to come. Nor, on one level, does it really matter, since as fans that just love the show, we get to sit here and watch all this stuff that we never thought we'd see, and that's great. But one day when we finally know this whole story, it'll be interesting to know how this all played out, because you're thinking about, well, they had to clean these up. They're, they have Enemy of the World coming out on DVD in November with Web of Fear to follow in 2014. But if they have Enemy of the World coming out in November, that means extras, that means commentaries, that means all sorts of other things. Surely that would have to have been in production and put together. So you're talking about a timeline, and then you start to wonder, why was the great intelligence coming up so much in the show recently? <laughs> was there something going on? Was there knowledge taking place? Was there an attempt to try to tie things together and the timing didn't quite work out but it's kind of intriguing and yeah it's interesting i mean it w- was was there a great conspiracy i mean certainly they must have had this for a few months because they've already done a restoration job on it as you can see in the trailers mm-hmm. uh, i don't think they've been they haven't vid fired it yet but they've you know cleaned up the scratches and what have you which is at least a couple of months work i imagine i actually i, I read something um earlier tonight that said um or today your time um that said that the DVDs were actually going to be vanilla releases, which is strange. Um, oh, okay, okay. Hmm. That changes it considerably then, all right. Yeah, which which is uh, a slightly odd thing to do if, if you've got people who've already paid sort of £10, 10 pounds to download it on iTunes. Um, sure. To ask them to do it again on vanilla DVDs. Particularly since we'd gladly wait for, you know, their because they've... They set the bar so high on doing some of the most beautiful DVD releases for any television show that's ever been done. Like it's, in, it's like it's like an ongoing DVD encyclopedia of that show. It'd be a shame not to do it for something this important and you know this the, these whole slices of history like that. That is odd. Where there's yeah, where there's such a story behind it, and everyone wants to know you know how it came to be and and, um, and get the thoughts of the production team of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, so the other interesting thing that I thought um, during the presentation um, yesterday was that um, they, they chose a slightly atypical episode of Web of Fear to show. I mean, obviously they couldn't show episode one because we have that, couldn't show episode three because we don't have that yet. Um, so episode two seems to be the logical one to go for, but it's actually very, you know, there's no doctor in it for a start. Mm. Um, there's no Colonel Lethbridge-Stewart. So it seems slightly curious that they chose that that one to present to the press. I'm hmm. not sure what their reasoning was there, but hmm. maybe they figured we'd got enough Patrick Troughton from Enemy of the World. You, know? <laughs> you got double the dose of Patrick Troughton. <laughs> yeah. I did notice you said we don't have Web of, three, Web of Fear 3 yet. Do we think that that's on the way? Um, again, I mean, if you read if you read the forums, and I you know I don't know how informed the people on the forums are, but they see they seem to have had everything pretty accurate, including the fact that Web of Three Web of Fear Three wasn't there. They're also saying that it may yet turn up, and that there are some unanticipated complications with it. So who knows? I mean, yeah. If I'm wearing my conspiracy hat, you could say 
Um, that's a great way of getting people to buy the DVD release if they were to suddenly miraculously recover it um, yeah. when they've already bought the uh, the iTunes release. But um, again, that would be assuming conspiracy. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And at the very least, all we can say is that having something this monumental happen and being able to sit down and watch these shows that have been gone for, what is it, 45 years now, basically, it does continue to give you regardless of conspiracy theories, it just continues to give you the hope that it just shows that it's never necessarily over. There's always the opportunity that more can be recovered, even when you think, well, we've probably reached the end now. And I, and I remember all the discussion that went on after the last time they recovered something, which was the two episodes of uh, Galaxy 4 and Underwater Menace. And a lot of people were saying, well, that's it then. The likelihood is you'll never again find Doctor Who abroad, but you might find it right here at home somewhere someone doesn't even know they have it. And this has proven that that's not a, a solid theory at all, that it, you can well, easily find it. I think the, the, the really interesting thing about this is that we now have to tear up the rule book because w- what he discovered, I mean, the, these were prints that were bicycled from Hong Kong um, and ended up in this relay station in Jos, Nigeria, proves that the documentation that we have that we've been using as a sort of holy Bible um, of, of missing Doctor Who is not entirely accurate and that potentially, you know, we could find more episodes anywhere. I work, uh, as some people already probably know, I do a lot of uh, book design work for Telos Publishing and one of the books that they've now done two editions of is Richard Molesworth's uh, book Wiped, which covers the entire history of the missing episodes of Doctor Who with just rigorous details about the countries, the locations, air dates, junkings, all those things. And all I keep thinking now is, well, there's going to have to be a third edition down the line now. Um, well, yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, not to take anything away from the amount of research that's gone into it, but it's clear that the paper trails only go so far and that you um, you have to consider other avenues of, uh, of exploration. Yeah, exactly. I, like you say, it changes the game in a lot of ways, and it, and in ways that are really exciting and hopeful for any fan to think well that's it you know as many arguments as you could have made on paper about well look these are the ways it could not possibly happen you can't really say that anymore it's amazing Mm. we could be sitting here in 2013 and think well it's still a good chance we could find more and more and more absolutely as long as I was going to say, as long as Philip Morris keeps his whip and his hat on (laughs) heads off into that jungle yeah man as, as, as long as he comes back with power of the Daleks, I'm happy, you know. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, well, unless, so, unless we anything else we wanted to add? Um, just that I think pro- probably the most extraordinary moment that that I had being there was was watching Deborah Watling watching her dad on the big screen um, uh, uh, in uh, Web of nice. which was um, which was just quite a sweet moment and. Um, something I, again, never thought I'd ever see in my wildest dreams. So That's really I, cool. I feel privileged to have been there. That's really cool. And we're glad you were able to share some of that with us, too. Absolutely. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks for listening to this satellite episode of the G2B Podcast, part of the Chronic Rift Network at chronicrift.com. Visit our official website at g2vpodcast.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Join our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter at G2V Podcast. And you can always email us directly at contact at G2V Podcast.com.
Our show music is by Brian Boyko and Frank Nora. <laughs>